The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. With that, let's go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 1. In light of our church merge, uh, just kind of see what God would have us do or what would be best maybe for our people that God might bless. Decided that we're going to go to the Word of God, and for the next, I think it's nine weeks, we're going to look at the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, go verse by verse, start in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, and go to the end of chapter 3. The benefit of doing that is because chapter 2 and 3, it's all about the local churches in Jesus' day, in, in the days of John the Apostle, and Jesus talks directly to every local church, and all seven, these were seven real historical churches, The apostles had pastored at some of these, if not all of them, highly privileged churches. And yet Jesus addresses every one of the churches. They all have distinct personalities. They all have strengths and weaknesses. And Jesus addresses every church and the believers in all those churches about their strengths and weaknesses, telling the people of God how they should function as a local church. Seven different ones. And I thought, how appropriate, how helpful would that be for us as we're doing a merge to get all of our thinking on the same page with all of our diversity, background, different experiences, unfamiliarities. We need to be thinking alike. That's what we learned last week in Philippians. Be unified. How do you do that? You must have the same mind. What does that mean, Paul? You must think alike in truth. Boy, if every Christian would just think like Jesus does about the local church, wouldn't we all just get along? Well, we can do that. So for the next nine weeks, we're going to look at the thinking of Jesus about the local church. And also decided to expose all of our regular teachers and preachers here at our churches. So I'll be preaching, Pastor Justin will be preaching, Derek will be preaching, JR will be preaching, Sam Kim will be preaching. So that way you get good exposure of all the preaching elders who primarily do that ministry. That'll be helpful for all of us as a church body. So we're really looking forward to it. Uh, it's my job to introduce the book of Revelation today, and then next week I'm going to cover the content of verses 1 through 20, and we'll just go from there. So by, it, it is very important to have an introduction to the book of Revelation, very important. And I'll tell you why. Let me ask you some questions. Anybody here who has studied, read, and did devotions in the book of Revelation in your own personal devotions in the last month? Just raise your hand. Okay, very few people. Uh, anybody here who's actually never read the entire book of Revelation or studied it? Okay, uh, there's some. Good. Thank you for not being afraid to raise your hand. It's okay. Uh, anybody who's never been at a church where they preached expositionally verse by verse through the whole book of Revelation? You've never had that church experience. Okay, that's, wow, that's more than half of you. Just so you know, when we started uh, the church 13 years ago after doing Ephesians, we spent 18 months in year three of preaching through Revelation, all 22 chapters of Grace Bible Fellowship. It was, it was wonderful. And it was valuable. And it gave us a perspective on what Jesus thought of the church. So the fact that so many of you didn't raise your hand is due to some misconceptions. I, I know pastors, well-known and personally, who have literally said and even written that, yeah, I'm, I'm never going to preach on Revelation. That's a dangerous book. No, I'm never going to preach on Revelation. It's too confusing. I don't want to confuse my people. A pastor saying, that's terrible. So let me dispel of just a handful of common 
misconceptions that particularly Christians might have about the book of Revelation. Uh, 100 people surveyed, top five answers on the board. Number one, it's too difficult to understand. And since it's so difficult, I don't want to go through the arduous work of trying to understand it, therefore I'm not going to read it. And people, literally Christians, have a fear about turning to the book of Revelation. That's a misconception. Uh, Revelation is not too difficult to understand. Um, another misconception, it's irrelevant. All that, you know, crazy, apocalyptic, visionary stuff it has nothing to do with my life. It doesn't have anything to do with me trying to pay my bills, being in and out of a job, the sickness that I have, the problems I have in my marriage, the problem I have with my kids, the problems I'm having with colleagues at work. <laughs> doesn't help. No, actually it does. To say that Revelation isn't relevant. Here's a trick question I routinely ask whenever I have the opportunity, especially in Sunday school classes and in Bible seminars. Which book is more important? Which book is more of a priority, Romans or Revelation? And then I'll have people raise their hand. And supermajority, if not everybody, always raises their hand when I say, which book is more important, Romans? Everybody raises their hand, Revelation? Nobody raises their hand. Which book is more important, John or Revelation? Oh, John, the Gospel, yeah, it's uh, about hearing the Gospel. Okay, that's wrong thinking too. We can't pit one Bible book against the other. It's all the Word of God. According to 2 Timothy 3.16, it is all inspired of God, God God-breathed, and profitable. All Scripture is profitable for four things. teaching, training in righteousness, etc., so that for the purpose of that you as a Christian might grow and mature in Christ. You can't do that with only a select few books of the Bible. We need the full counsel of God. Can't be afraid of the book of Revelation. It can't be neglected. It is not irrelevant. Oh, there's too many interpretations out there. Well, actually there are. I agree with that one. I have about 50 commentaries on Revelation. And yeah, it's a convoluted mess trying to read those. Here's a piece of advice. If you want to learn about the book of Revelation, don't read the commentaries. Just read the book of Revelation. My son did that when he was eight years old. Probably got saved at age seven. Had a hunger for the Bible. On his own, read Revelation at age eight. The whole thing. Start asking me questions. Wow, Dad, that Revelation book, that's crazy. Yeah, it is. You read the whole thing? Yep. Dad, I mean, like, wow, that stuff hasn't really happened in the, in the world, has it? doesn't seem like it. No, it hasn't. Is it like stuff going to happen in the future? Yeah. I mean, really? Yeah. Well, man, it's going to be really bad. Yeah, it is. Anything like you had problems understanding? Not really. Oh, all right. Excuse me. <laughs> Mr. Eight-year-old, you should write a commentary. Anyway, he hasn't changed his view now that he's 21. That was such a, a beautiful, wonderful lesson for me, how simplistic. God wants us to understand His Word. He's not trying to confuse us. Just the doctrine of what we call the doctrine of clarity or the doctrine of perspicuity means God intends His people to understand His Word, and Revelation is no exception. Okay, so I, w- I want to give you a, an overview here of the book of Revelation. Uh, just 10 quick points, just an overview. Be helpful for you. I mean, you know, and I could preach for two hours on each of the points. I don't need to do that. Don't want to do that. Um, You want to do the research, go do the research. I'm giving you the fruits of 30 years of research on my part. Um, I've preached on Revelation, the whole book, many times, taught on it many times. 
Uh, I took a Greek advanced, advanced Greek exegesis class my third year of seminary from probably one of the greatest scholars of the apocalypse or revelation my senior year. I had to parse uh, or do the conjugation of every word in revelation of all 404 verses in writing, every noun, every article, every verb. It was a great challenge, great experience, but I learned a lot. So some of the fruits of that labor I just wanted to share with you. You could get confused real easy. So hopefully you have a good study Bible and they don't mess these points up, all right? But here we go. Just a quick overview. This book is called The Revelation. Why is it called Revelation? By the way, it's not Revelations, S. It's Revelation. Revelation. Where does it come from? Well, in Jewish-like fashion, it comes from the first word in the text. In the Greek text, it's apocalypsis. Apocalypse. You've heard that, apocalypse. Apocalypse now, apocalyptic literature, etc. So that's where it comes from. The apocalypsis of Jesus, Christos. Jesus Christ. The apoc- well, what does it mean? I put it there for you. Apocalypsis just simply means to unveil, to disclose, to make known, to reveal, hence revelation. Used many times in the New Testament, not just by John. Most of the time in reference to the unveiling, the revelation of Jesus Christ and his glory at the end of the age, but used in many other contexts. And 100% of the contexts, it refers to disclosing new spiritual truth that was previously unknown. We're going to learn things. Just from the first word, apocalypse, when you're reading Revelation, that is a promise from God that you're going to learn stuff in here that you won't read or learn about anywhere else in the other 65 books of the Bible. That's kind of cool. We are privileged. God's going to unveil new stuff. Most of what John the Apostle is giving here in these 22 chapters in 95 AD when he's in his 90s or however old he is, 80s, as an old man, this is stuff he didn't even know. It was newly revealed to him. He walked and talked with Jesus for three and a half years as an apostle. He probably grew up with Jesus as his distant cousin. There's a lot he heard from Jesus. He'd been reading the writings of the Apostle Paul and the other apostles. There's a lot that John had known, but now he's going to get a whole bunch of new stuff. Peter died in the 60s. Paul died in the 60s. 30 years go by, goes by, and then God just unloads a whole bunch of revelation that's new that Peter and Paul never had access to, never privileged to see these things. Peter uh, had him, didn't have information that Paul did. Paul got all these mysteries from God. And Peter's like, well, what's that? Where'd you get that from? Jesus never told us that. Man, it was all these mysteries, mysterion, that Paul was getting, privileged information. And Peter's like, whoa, I never heard that before. Man, that is hard to understand. Hey, everybody, he starts writing about it in 2 Peter. Man, you know, Paul, he's hard to understand, weird stuff, but you know what? He's of God. Listen to him. And try to figure him out, by the way. Same thing with John the Apostle. All this privileged information that Paul had no idea during his lifetime. So that should make it exciting. It should make it tempting for you right there. Boy, what am I going to learn in this book? So that's the title, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. God is going to unveil. And what is God unveiling primarily throughout 22 chapters? It is the revelation, the unveiling, the revealing of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ in his full glory. Things about Jesus that hadn't been said yet, either in the Gospels, the Old Testament, the epistles, more information, and it's going to be the fullness of information about the Lord Jesus Christ with the emphasis on the fact that he is sovereign, he is the king of kings, the lord of lords, totally in control, coming again. He reigns with a scepter in his hands. The reason they needed to hear that is because the Christians listening to this were persecuted under the sovereign rule 
of a Roman emperor who thought he was God, who was persecuting Christians, even killing Christians, snuffing out churches. They needed to hear this message that Jesus is king. And let me tell you about that, some details of it. The world is in the palm of his hand. You're going to see that in the book of Revelation. So uh, the author, I've alluded to it already, number two, the author is John the Apostle. This is just unanimous in early church testimony for the first two centuries. Nobody even questioned the authorship of John the Apostle until hundreds of years later and then recently in the 17, 18, 1900s under liberal German scholarship and, the, and liberal scholarship. And now evangelical conservatives have bought into that because it's academic and prestigious. And of course, we, living 2,000 years later, know much more about the Bible than people who lived 2,000 years ago the attitude. So they've put forth ideas that, no, it wasn't written by an apostle. It was written 200 years after Jesus. It was written by some guy who wasn't John the Apostle, but he was an elder, and he wasn't an eyewitness, and blah, 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 blah. It's not true. John the Apostle wrote it four times. Paul calls himself John. John bore witness to the Word of God. Uh, I, John, chapter 1, verse 9, chapter 22, verse 8, chapter 1, verse 4, chapter 1, verse 1. John the Apostle wrote this book. It's the last book in the New Testament. John had a prolific ministry at the end of his age in the 80s and 90s. He wrote all three of his epistles. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the book of Revelation. God was just using him in an amazing ways to close out the canon, to close out the foundational apostolic Christian era, to lay the foundation of the church throughout history. John was the last man. All of his buddies and disciples and apostles, they'd been murdered. He alone was left alive and now a prisoner in the Roman Emperor in Asia Minor off the coast in a little island called the island of Patmos. John was a prisoner at this time. He was arrested. He was thrown in jail. He was chained. He was beaten, brutalized. Why? What was his crime? He was a Christian. He was in jail because he loved Jesus. I'll never forget one of the times I was teaching through the book of Revelation. It was to high schoolers probably about 20 years ago. And I was giving the introduction talking about how John was in jail for being a Christian and how this book is about persecuted Christians and how we need to find comfort from that message today because people, the world is persecuting Christians. And one 18-year-old student just raised their hand and obnoxiously, not obnoxiously, but just interrupted me and said, Psh, yeah, right. People aren't, Christians aren't being uh, persecuted today. I was like, oh my, oh my, how sheltered are we? It's common. It already exists all over the world, and it's been true all throughout history. But anyway, it's John the Apostle, no doubt about it. All he has to do, by the way, the fact that John writes this book, he writes it to seven local churches in Asia Minor, and he names them by name the church, to the church at Ephesus. In do you know that John the Apostle was a pastor there for 30 years at Ephesus? 30 years? Think about the church of Ephesus, how privileged they were. The Apostle Paul goes into Ephesus, preaches the word. He spends three and a half years in Ephesus, builds a church, plants the church, helps the church grow, spends three years there, sends them all kinds of uh, other epistles, including the book of Ephesians and probably Colossians. And so Paul pastored there for three years, hands-on, and then visited it several times. And then after Paul is killed in the late 60s, then John goes over there and he becomes the pastor from about 68 to 98. For 30 years, John is the pastor at the church at Ephesus and probably some of these other local churches. So it makes sense that when, when John is writing to his church, he doesn't need to say, oh, by the way, I am John the Apostle with a capital A, descendant of... He doesn't need to do that. It's John, 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 your pastor, John. It's sufficient. They understood. It's authentic. 
So John was the author, the apostle. Number three, what was the date? A.D. 95. This is unanimous in early church testimony because it was during the reign of Domitian, the thug of a brutal Roman emperor like many of them were. Domitian, I put there 81 to 96 A.D. John maybe wrote around 95 A.D., the best we can tell. Domitian. This is a unanimous consent of the early church for the first two to three hundred years. There are no deviations from that view. Till later, same old thing. Then people, as the years and decades and centuries go by, people think they're smarter than the early church people and come up with theories, not fact, and they, they change it, come up with a new theory. Oh, no, it was, uh, all, now people are saying that Revelation was written during the reign of Nero who reigned from 54 to 68 A.D., which makes absolutely no sense whatsoever because John the Apostle wasn't there by that time. So there's just many reasons why not. So that is a mega minor opinion that Nero, during Nero's reign in the 60s, John the Apostle wrote Revelation. Why would an evangelical even hold to that view? Because it's a made-up view. There's no evidence for it whatsoever, and it's theologically driven. They, they want to believe that John that Revelation was written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. because they want to say that everything you read about in Revelation was historically fulfilled prior to and in 70 A.D. Everything. All of it. Including, you go to Revelation 19 where John says, I had a vision, and, I, and behold, in the clouds, one on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth and his face shining as the sun and his head is white like wool. And there's, he's got a long robe and blood on his thigh, and his name is, and then R.C. Sproul writes a commentary and says, you know who that is? We read it and think it's Jesus because it says, his name is the Word of God. That's what it says. And then R.C. Sproul's commentary says, uh, this is not Jesus, this is the Roman army coming to sack and attack Jerusalem. So you have to interpret it allegorically. So he's one example because he's, man, i got to get this whole book fulfilled before 70 A.D. somehow, and if I have to invent something, I will. So that's just to show you what's out there. That's why I don't want you to get confused. Number four. Now, what is the setting? Well, chapter one, John lets us know. He is writing to seven churches that are true historical churches that exist in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. There's, they're very close in proximity, average maybe 30 miles apart from one another. Uh, the names of their churches are the names after the city in which they existed. It is formerly the Church of Ephesus, the Church at Philadelphia, the Church at whatever. So when Pastor Justin and I were thinking about, well, what were the name? Do we need a new name? Well, of course, we have to have a name of the new church merge. And then it, we came up with Creekside Bible Church. And I was like, oh, I like that. And one of the reasons I liked it was because there was biblical precedent in that so many of those New Testament churches were named after the city in which they existed. And our current location is literally right by next to Creekside Park. It's on every map in the city, Creekside. It's a beautiful thing. Um, so John, he's old, served 30 years, got arrested for being a Christian, taken away from his people, taken away from his pastoral responsibilities, getting served in hard labor on a remote island called Patmos. More of the setting is that this entire period of history under this particular Roman emperor is a time of persecution. It is anti-Christian because Jesus as Lord is in competition to Caesar being Lord. They're trying to snuff Christianity out with the state, and 
There are verses all throughout the book of Revelation that let us know it is a time of tribulation. You can just go to Revelation 2 and 3. We're going to hear from Pastor Justin and Sam anyway about churches being persecuted during that time. And the word tribulation is used. That's not the future seven-year tribulation. It's tribulation is just, uh, and not just normal everyday suffering. This is uh, being foisted upon them, and they are under duress, that kind of tribulation. Illegitimate persecution is what it's talking about, and that's, that's the setting. These Christians are under duress. They ain't, they're being persecuted. Some of them are being killed. Many of them are being shackled. Churches are being shut down. They are being silenced. They are being whipped. They're becoming slaves. They are being abused. That's happening in countries all over the world today, and we're seeing more and more of it happening here to Christians in America, and you know what? It's just going to get worse. It's the promise of Scripture. It's the pattern of history, and it's the headline news if you're paying attention. But our security is in God. So there's a practical application. We can find comfort in the book of Revelation in light of the ongoing assault on Christianity going on in America. That's the setting. What about the purpose? Uh, keeping in with what I just said, very similar. Here's three things. There are many purposes to this book, but here's just three highlights. The first one is to encourage persecuted believers. Paul's, remember Paul's, I mean, John's a pastor. He loves his people. He identifies with their pain and their persecution. Chapter 2, verse 12, he's writing to the church of Pergamum nearby. He probably had knows the people in this church and served there and pastored there. He knows what's going on there. He's got detail about it. Chapter 2, verse 13, he says, I know you, dear saints, in Pergamum. I know where you live. I know where you dwell. Actually, you're right in the thick of it. You guys live. Your church is planted on Satan's throne. That means your city is corrupt. It is wicked. It is demonic. So he knows that. This is also information he's getting from God's Spirit. Man, you're right there in the thick of it. And, and, but yet you hold fast to my name. Despite Satan's wiles and deception and persecution, you didn't deny my faith. You didn't deny me even in the days of Antipas? Who's Antipas? Could be the pastor of this church. You didn't, even deny, you didn't deny me. You didn't reject Jesus. Even in the days of Antipas, my, my witness, my faithful one, this is Jesus talking. Well, what happened to him? Well, he was killed among you. They need comfort. Church leader slaughtered for being a Christian. They were probably living in fear and at the same time trusting God to encourage persecuted believers. What else? Well, to, to bless all believers and believers of John's day, but to bless us. It's amazing to think that God wrote this to bless us who lived 2,000 years later. Jesus was not just thinking of those in the first century. He was thinking of all saints of all ages. We know that because he says so in the book of Revelation. Because he gives these amazing promises to the churches about what they're going to inherit when they get to heaven. And then in addition to that, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know what that is? That's a universal invitation to any Christian during any age. That this is a promise, promise and an inheritance for you as well from Jesus himself. So the word of God was given to those who lived immediately, and God intended it also to be for the saints of all the ages. So there's much relevance and blessing to be taken from us. Look at this blessing that is explicit in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. This is unique to the book of Revelation. You've got 66 books in the Bible. This is the only Bible book that does this. It gives you this kind of promise. And Revelation has at least seven promises to the reader. Here's one of them. Verse 3, blessed is he, literally the one, blessed is the Christian, Blessed is the believer. Blessed is the one who reads 
and those who hear the words of this prophecy, you are blessed. You get to read it, you get to hear it, it's contents, and not only that, then you do it, and heed, and do the things which are written in it. So there are actually practical things you can do in the book of Revelation according to John, or Jesus and God himself. And if you listen to it, you take it in, you welcome it, you meditate on it, you understand it, and then you apply it to your life, and you live it out in obedience, God blesses you. That's a promise. So this book comes with a blessing from God, and, and the book ends that way too. You will be blessed, uh, Revelation 22. Well, I want to be blessed, then read Revelation. I want to be blessed and listen to Revelation. I want to be blessed and memorize Revelation. I want to be blessed and do Revelation. We've got a brother who's a deacon at, our, at the Cornerstone Seminary. He's memorized the whole book of Revelation, the whole book. And he stands up and recites it to the congregation or those who listen. Amazing stuff. Blessing, that's good stuff. What else is the purpose of this book? To complete the story, uh, God wanted to fill out his revelation. If we didn't have the book of Revelation, there's a lot we wouldn't know. We wouldn't know there was a thing called a millennium. There's no millennium in the Old Testament. Mille, that's Latin. I don't do Latin, but that's where we get it from. Chilios, chiliac, that's the actual Greek word. It means a, a thousand, and it literally means a thousand. In Revelation 20, six times, talks about a future time on earth, Revelation 5.10, that will last 1,000 years where Jesus reigns as King of kings on planet earth. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6, Revelation 20 is the answer to Jesus' prayer. So, terms of being blessed, we're going to complete the story. So we didn't know about the millennium, the thousand years. I mean, just most of Revelation we didn't know. Paul didn't know it. Peter didn't know it. The apostles didn't know it. Jesus didn't share it because he didn't want it to be shared at that time. Revelation is part two of the book of Daniel. If, if you read Daniel, it talks about future coming world history and the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians, and then at the end of the age, the Roman Empire, uh, and then it kind of stops abruptly, and Daniel's, hey, tell me more. I want to hear how it ends. And he says, nope, sorry. Sealed up, sealed up for another day. Sealed up for when? When got John got it from Jesus. Opened it up, completed the story. Fills in all the holes. You don't need to know anything more. If you've got these 66 books of the Bible, you have the full counsel and the full revelation of God. There is no more. Completely sufficient to complete the story. That's the purpose. Well, number six. Let's talk about the genre. Number six. The genre. That's a weird word. No, John. Genre. How's your French? Francais? Oui, oui. Anyway, number six, genre. The genre of the book. That is a big deal in academic circles at the seminary level. If you're in tune with all what's going on, commentaries, whatever. What's the genre? What's the genre? Before I study this book and give you an interpretation, I need to know the genre. What's the genre? What's the genre? You know, they weren't doing that 50 years ago. How did the church for like 1950 years survive and interpret the Bible? without knowing the special genre of a Bible book? I don't know how they did it. But anyway, can't do it today. you got to know the genre, and there's 50 zillion genres, by the way. I've got a genre study Bible, and it, it, it delineates, I think, 142 different genres you got to know. And the guy says in the introduction, you got to know all 142 before you can understand the Bible. You know what I did with the Bible? Just chucked it. 
so genre is a recent preoccupation in literary studies, and then it spilled over into biblical studies. People bought into it because nobody knows what it is, so that's impressive. There is no consensus on the definition of genre among literary scholars. By the way, that's a fact. And just this whole notion that you can't interpret a book of the Bible until you know the genre, which is silly because you can't interpret the genre of the book until you read it and understand it. But you can't read and understand the book until you figure out the genre. But you can't figure out the genre until you read it and understand it. But you can't. Anyway, I can keep going. So that's like a circular dilemma that goes on ad infinitum. So the point is, the number one answer people give today, scholars would say it's apocalyptic literature. Can I just tell you that's wrong? There's no consensus on a definition of apocalyptic literature. There are formerly 31 different traits of apocalyptic literature. Most of those 31 traits also apply to prophetic literature. One of those traits that's prominent doesn't apply to biblical prophetic literature because virtually all of apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature, that's hard to say, uh, is pseudonymic. Pseudonym, in other words, has a phony name attached to it. It's an imposter. That is typical of apocalyptic literature. There are some Old Testament books like that. Some guys trying to copy Daniel, Bell and the Dragon, and and other false apostles making up names. Oh, I'm the book of James. I mean, uh, the book of Thomas, the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Judas, all that. They're all phony. But that's typical of apocalyptic literature. So as far as the genre, Revelation is not apocalyptic literature. It hasn't been called that throughout church history. It wasn't called that in early church history. John the Apostle doesn't call it apocalyptic. John the Apostle tells us what it is. Chapter 1, verse 3, 22, verse 7, verse 10, 18, and 19, he says this prophecy, this prophecy, this prophecy. Real simple. Take the Bible at face value. What is the genre of this book? Prophecy. And the, the genre of prophecy in the Bible is definitely different than other kinds of genre. Book of Genesis, for the most part, is just prose and narrative, a bunch of stories. Real easy to understand. It's not prophecy. Revelation is prophecy. Daniel is prophecy. Ezekiel is prophecy. Isaiah is prophecy. How do we know? Because they told us it is. It's prophecy. The prophets. The prophets wrote prophecy. The book of Proverbs is wisdom literature or poetry, Hebrew poetry. And you know how we interpret them? We interpret them all the same in terms of how we read it and we adjust. We'll talk more about that in a second. But anyway, it's, it's prophecy. It's, by the way, it's divine prophecy. It's direct revelation from God written down, reflecting the mind of God. Number seven, what's the outline? Some books really can't be outlined because that's impractical, but John gives us his own outline of the book, which I think is very helpful. Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. People blow this off and don't pay attention to it. I think it is absolutely vitally important. If you knew Greek, read this verse in Greek, and then you read chapter 4, verse 1, uh, and other verses, uh, chapter uh, 2, verse 1 in Greek, you'd say, whoa, that's pretty obvious. There's an outline by John. It's a threefold outline, verse 19. Therefore, Jesus says to John the uh, Apostle, write the things which you have seen. What did he just see? It was a vision in his jail cell. Right there, chapter 1. Write down what you just saw, chapter 1. After you do that, John, then write the things which are, present tense. What things that are? Well, things going on right now that I'm going to tell you about. Well, what are those? Things going on in the seven churches. That's chapter 2 and 3, the things which are. That's what he calls them later in the book. So write down the things which you saw chapter 1, write down the things that are going on right now, that's the seven churches, chapter 2 and 3, and then, very specific language, metatautos in the Greek, and the things which shall take place after these things, metatautos, Greek phrase, very specific, very definitive, very technical, chapter 4, verse 1, these are metatautos, the things after these things. Revelation 4 through 21, 22 is point 
three in the outline, the future things, the things to come, the things that will transpire in the future after John's day. That is the divinely inspired outline of the book of Revelation. Number eight, how was John influenced to write this? Because did he just pull it out of thin air? No, he got direct revelation from God, the Spirit of God. Uh, Jesus, through the Spirit, gave him uh, visions whether he saw him in his sleep, he was awake, saw him at night, saw him in his head, saw him literally, but they were visions. Uh, chapter 1 says that God signed the book. Sameon signed, visioned the book. It was like a storybook. It's like what we do in Child Evangelism Fellowship to second graders. It's the picture book. Here are pictures. Very helpful. That is what God did with John to communicate it. John saw it in pictures, and then he wrote it down for us. It's kind of fun to stop and just try to write the visions that he describes, and you come up with some pretty amazing and sometimes scary and gruesome pictures. But God signed the book to him. That was an influence. But other influences were that he was Jewish, and so he uses his Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, and he also uses the Septuagint at times. We know from reading the verses, the Greek Old Testament. So he uses both the Hebrew and the Greek, depending upon. And he probably was using whatever he had memorized because he probably didn't have access to all of his tools as a prisoner doing hard labor. And 278 there are 278 allusions John makes to Old Testament books. 278 out of 404 verses total in the book of Revelation. 278 direct allusions to the Old Testament. And not one time does John quote an Old Testament verse verbatim. He alludes to them. Here's a great explicit example that... I'll read to you. It's Revelation 12 if you have your Bible. Otherwise, just listen carefully. I saw a great sign appeared in heaven. So he's having a vision. What was it? A woman clothed with the sun. So there's a woman, bright, splendorous sun. Immediately, well, who is that woman? Well, the Catholic Church says that's Mary, of course. That's what I was taught. That's what they teach. That's what they believe. It was Mary. John had a vision of Mary. Chapter 12, verse 1. She was clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain. And that's why you see Catholic pictures of Mary, and she's standing on a snake, serpent, killing that serpent, because they say this is the glorious Mary. When actually, uh, the woman clothed with the sun, so a woman, oh, and the moon under her feet, so you've got a woman, and you've got the sun and the moon, and 12 stars. Wait, sun, moon, 12 stars. Sun, moon, 12 stars. Oh, that's the book of Genesis. Oh, that's the story of Joseph. That's the vision Joseph had. His father was the sun. His mother was the moon. His brothers were the stars. He was the 12th star. Really? So then who's the woman? Israel. Not Mary. You you know that just from reading the context and knowing your Bible. Number nine, hermeneutics. This is how you interpret the Bible, the science of interpreting the Bible. What's hermeneutics? Hermeneutics are the rules of Bible interpretation. They are the rules. That's it. What's hermeneutics? The rules of interpreting the Bible. What are the rules? Normal. That goes in the blank. How do you interpret Revelation? Literally, with an asterisk, not allegorically, because then you're totally subjective making stuff up. A star that fell from heaven, that's Muhammad, says one commentary. How do you know that? Muhammad, who lived in 600 A.D.? Do you think John was thinking the star was Muhammad 
when he wrote it when he lived 600 years before Muhammad? I don't think so. The text doesn't say it's Muhammad, so that'd be one example. So, in other words, we use the same her- So, I read and study the Gospel of John the same way I do the book of Revelation, the same way I do the Proverbs, the same way I do Genesis, the same way I do the Psalms, the same way I do Habakkuk. Really, same hermeneutic. And your hermeneutic should just allow for visions and metaphors and similes and figures of speech, and we recognize those. And for the most part, the language is in normal language of the people. God wants us to understand His Word. By the way, here's a challenge. Uh, I challenge anyone to just read Revelation at face value with no commentaries and outside influence and just take it at face value. And your interpretation with other people who do that, it's going to be pretty consistent if you're a Christian and you know the Old Testament. If you're into allegory, allegorizing prophecy and making stuff up to fit into your theology, and I have 50 people like you, you're going to get 50 different interpretations when all is said and done. Nobody agrees. How do I know? Because I have the commentaries that do that. Evangelical theologians who are into allegorical interpretation of prophecy, and then I've got 12 of them, and it's like, not one guy says the same thing about this passage. The guys that take it literally, they're all saying the same thing. Revelation 19, this is Jesus coming on a white horse. This is not some Roman soul, a general. This isn't the Roman army. This isn't Hannibal or Alexander or Hitler. That's in some of the commentaries. Gorbachev, Hillary, I could go on. And I'm not kidding. It's crazy what people are coming up with. Uh, And then finally, number 10. Well, what can we take away? Well, just from our brief overview, This book is encouraging. Be blessed, Christian. Read this book. Ask God to help you understand it. We do have reliable resources that can help you as well. Just four takeaways. We need to be reminded. This this book will inform your worldview. There's just a handful of books, I believe, in the Bible that you can't have a complete worldview without knowing. One is uh, Ecclesiastes. Uh, One is the book of Romans, probably. One is the book of Revelation. Because it's all about how the world ends. If you think the world is ending by global warming, you have a perverted, distorted worldview. That isn't how the world ends. Revelation tells us how the world ends. For me in the 80s, it was the world's going to end with the nuclear holocaust because of the Russians and the communists. Literally, that's what we believed. We lived in fear. There was a worldview about the future and the end of the world. Revelation will fix that. It tells you how the world ends. Uh, another major theme, God is sovereign. The Roman emperor is not sovereign. Domitian is not sovereign. The persecutor who hates Christians, he is not sovereign. God is sovereign. God cares about his people. Another one, Jesus is king. Jesus is king of kings, Lord of lords. He reigns, not the Roman emperor. He reigns for all the ages. He's coming again. How encouraging is that? And then finally, for us, the sin. We read this book, the saints what? Win, we win. Victory, victory, overcomer, Nike, Nike. I think I have Nike socks on today. This is a Nike tie, by the way. Where'd it come from? The book of Revelation, Nike. Romans chapter 8, Nike. He overcomes. He makes you an overcomer if you believe in him. What's the end of the story? We win. If you want to skip the first 21 chapters and just go to chapter 22, I welcome you to do that. What's the answer? We win. With that, let's go to prayer. Father, thank you for this day, the Lord's day you have given to us as a gift.
again, we, we thank you for what you're doing in our, our personal lives here at our local church. Just the last two blessed weeks to fellowship with the saints, to worship you, to learn from you. God, we pray that you'd go before us, that we would not be impatient or get ahead of you, trust you. God, thank you for these reminders from your word, the book of Revelation, the Spirit of God, that we can rest in you, take comfort in you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are King of kings, Lord of lords. We give you all the praise. May we rest in you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.